Let's turn out to read the Word of God in the New Testament. We'll read two short passages. First of all, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and at verse 13. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. Let us hear the word of God. Now who, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. And then second, we read a few verses in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, and at the beginning of the chapter. Revelation 20, and at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until a thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they would be tormented day and night 
forever and ever. Amen. This God's word with trust that will bless to us these readings from it. So now we turn to praise God in the Scottish Psalter in Psalm 61 and at verse 1. Psalm 61 at verse 1. It's on page 293. O God, give ear unto my cry and to my prayer attend. From the utmost corner of the land, my cry to thee I'll send. To the verse mark 5, to God's praise. Oh God, give back now to 1 Peter and chapter 3 and we can read at verse number 18. 1 Peter 3 at verse 18. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which you went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, and so on. Now we continue to look at the way in which Peter is seeking to encourage those who are the hearers of his letter, and he is needing to encourage them because of the challenges that they face. And we noted in the children's address how harmful fear can be in no matter what we are doing, but especially when it comes to our faith, that if we fear other people, if we fear showing our faith in the world, then that will not only ensnare us, but fear will very often silence us. And by the very way in which Peter has spoken in chapter 2, he has reminded them that they have been called from darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel so that they will show forth the gospel and the goodness of Christ to the world in which they live. And that is the challenge for them to do so, and also the challenge for ourselves. Uh, And one of the main encouragements that uh, Peter uses regularly throughout his letter is to put everything into a heavenly perspective. There's nothing worse than thinking that What we see is all that there is, and that so often leaves us demoralized. But when we can see out of that box and move out of that box and see where God is, then that transforms our experience. It takes away our fear, and it makes us strong in the grace that there is in Christ Jesus. And when we, in the section from verse 13 down to the end of the chapter, it's obvious that He is continuing on the same thing, suffering for being a Christian, suffering for believing in the Lord Jesus. And we want to look at the second half of this section from verse 18 to the end of the chapter and see the way in which he gives to them a Bible-based understanding of their suffering and of their journey, and from there that they will be able to to continue in their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. And looking at these verses then, I'm thinking of faithful endurance and the exaltation of Christ. First of all, we want to see that there's a plan. Peter brings us back to consider that everything is in the heart and mind of God and everything in accordance with that. And he begins uh, the section by reminding us at verse number 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He has mentioned in chapter 2 the way in which Jesus suffered, and that was an example to them to continue even through suffering. But here he is drawing their attention right back to to where their existence begins and what has given to them their faith and what has given to them the status that they have as the children of God. That Christ suffered once for sins. 
and the whole picture is one of Christ being, being, as it were, invaded by all of the forces outside of himself, forces that turn to be against him, and in that moment on the cross at Calvary, to sense that the whole world is against him, and to sense in that very time of suffering that God himself is against him. He becomes the target of the eternal wrath of God. And we remind ourselves of the the words of Zechariah in chapter 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the one who is my close companion. We think of Jesus suffering on the cross at Calvary. Everyone is against him. God is against him. And all of that because he is there only once and he is there for sins. He is there with regard to sin. He is there with regard to taking sin away. In other words, he is there with regard to reconciliation. And he wants to remind them that they were unrighteous themselves just as those around them are unrighteous, those who are causing them to suffer for their faith. And he wants to remind them that they are who they are, sharing in the suffering of the Lord Jesus because they are reconciled to God by the suffering of that same Jesus, that suffering that he endured once for them on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. The plan of God that necessitates that the person who is going to be the substitute must be himself distinct from those for whom he is going to suffer in the sense that he will have no sin of his own, he will have no guilt of his own, he won't be deserving of any penalty because of who he is, he will be the righteous, the holy one, the one who is separate from sinners, the one who is holy and harmless and concerning whom there is no defilement or uncleanness, the righteous one. And he comes to suffer once for sins for the unrighteous, not only for those who are different to him, but for those who are exactly the opposite. He is the righteous one. They are the ones without righteousness. And he stands and he hangs in the presence of God as the sacrifice for sins. As my righteous servant, says God in Isaiah 53. And whatever we're going to do with regard to considering our faith and what it is to to live our faith and the fears that we have with regard to our faith. Our starting point where we begin to consider who we are is in the suffering of Christ on the cross. And that is because of the plan of God. What is the plan of God? Is it to reconcile us to himself? Yes. 
Is it to give us forgiveness of sin? Yes. Is it to make us the children of God? Yes. Is it to make us disciples that will serve him in the world? Yes. But that is not all. And Peter wants them to to have the complete heavenly perspective of, of their salvation and to understand that Christ also severed once for sins that he might bring us to God. And he wants them to understand that in the very place where they are um, the most fearful, in the very place where they are surrounded by the forces that seem to stand against them, that they are on a journey. They are on a journey from where they were as the unrighteous ones and that they are on a journey to be at last in the presence of God. And Peter at the very very beginning of his letter has made that quite clear that they are born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are guarded by God's power through faith. It's a plan. There's a purpose. And there is a journey. And by pointing to the very purpose of God and the very plan of God, he gives them that heavenly perspective which he is now going to explain to them in regard to its significance. And today let us ponder and pause and, and reflect upon our own personal journey. Where do you think you've come from today? Where do you think you're going what is the significance of this moment on your journey? What's the significant of, significance of this day on your journey through this world? The Word of God and the Gospel wants us to reflect upon all of these questions and to come to understand whether or not we are part of this purpose of God and on this journey to be with God. A journey that is full of life and full of meaning and full of purpose and full of powerful attraction and direction. The purpose of God. The death of the Lord Jesus. The taking away of sin and the eternal life and the paradise of God that God himself has in view. The purpose. Secondly, there is a proclamation. And the proclamation here is not to them and it's not to you. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. There is progression, there's a pathway, there's a journey which Jesus himself undertook. 
And that journey took him into this world where he was put to death in the flesh. It's simply that he suffered in his body and that he, he died and he was put to death on Calvary's cross. And when we read through the Gospel and, and read through the Book of Acts, we see the way in which it becomes clear that the way in which the death of Jesus was presented and proclaimed to, to those who were around was that he was crucified at the hands of wicked men. He was slain by those who were his enemies. They were looking for an opportunity to put him to death. And so he was put to death in the flesh. In all of his brokenness, in all of the ways in which he was crowned by the crown of thorns, in every way in which he was stripped naked and pierced with the nails, and at last pierced with the sword, he was put to death in the flesh. He was already dead. He said it is finished. He gave up the spirit. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And that is the, the most important thing that we read about the Lord Jesus. More important even than the fact that he died, that he was made alive in the spirit, that God came into the tomb in which he was laid, and that by the spirit of God, God raised him from the dead. He was entirely passive. He was the passive sufferer on the cross. He is passive as his body lays in the tomb. And God raised him up from there. He was made alive in the spirit. And that being made alive in the spirit is the next stage of the journey of Jesus so that we are to see him not just in the garden where he met with Mary, but that we are to see him as the one who is made alive and is raised to be at the right hand of God the Father. He had a natural body. He knows a spiritual body. And the God who raised up Jesus from the dead and gave him that spiritual body is the God who will do the same for the children of God. But the key thing here is that not just is he alive from the dead, but that he has entered in to the glory of God. And that becomes obvious at the end of the chapter where he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. The progression, the journey that Jesus himself undertook. And it is at the end of that journey that he makes a proclamation in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. In which? What does that refer to? In what? In which? It refers back to his life in the spirit at the right hand of God. 
in his exaltation and in his glory as the one who is seated at God's right hand. The Jesus who prayed to God the Father in John 17, the hour has come, glorify your Son with the glory which he had with you before the world was. And in that glory now, he went and proclaimed. And when we ask, where did he go? And to whom did he proclaim? It raises the question of the unseen spiritual victory that Jesus took part of and that Jesus leads his people into after his resurrection. He went to the spirits in prison. And for consistency, we want to see that the word which is translated, he went, and which is in verse 22 translated, has, has gone into that the word is the same in the Greek. And so there is no suggestion in verse 19 in which he went down. That is not the image at all. The image is actually that as he went to the right hand of God, that in that being presented at the right hand of God, that there he makes his proclamation. And what is his proclamation? This proclamation is to the spirits in prison. We follow the, the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and time after time he is confronted with spirits and spiritual darkness and the spirit that is working in, in, in evil and, and working evil in people's lives. And he drives that spirit out of them. We hear Paul in Ephesians 6 speaking about the way in which we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. More importantly, we hear Jesus saying on the way to the cross, now is the judgment of this world, now is the ruler of this world cast out. And the Jesus who dies on Calvary's cross, who is raised from the dead on the first day of the week, is the Jesus who stands in the presence of the glory of God and proclaims to these very spirits, the spirits that are now in prison, that the victory is his. And we saw that vision of John in John chapter 20, where the angel comes with a chain and binds that ancient serpent who is the devil and who is Satan, puts him into the bottomless pit and seals them there. You're defeated is the message. It's the proclamation. This is the result of my saving work, my death and my resurrection. Your influence is over. Your deceiving of the people of God and of the nations of this world has come to an end. And yes, there may be and there will be some activity. But the message is, the proclamation to the spirits in prison, the message to them is that this is the hour of the triumph of Jesus. That this is the hour of their defeat. 
that this is therefore the hour of the victory and the triumph of the people of God. And in the passage that we will look at this evening, there is that picture of the triumphal procession of Jesus who disarmed rulers and and authorities and made a public show of them, putting them to open shame through his own work and through the cross. The proclamation. The authority and the power of Jesus of Nazareth, who is Lord of glory and stands over all the powers of hell, who stands over Satan himself and who proclaims with his voice and who exerts with his power the very fact that their day is over, that the time has come for the kingdom to be taken from them. And the writer to the Hebrews sums that up in chapter number 2, that the captain of our salvation, the founder of our salvation, that he came to destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. And to redeem, to rescue those who, through fear of death, are all of their lives subject to bondage. Proclamation. And for you and for me today, we need to listen to this insight and to hear this message of Jesus to those whom he has confined and bound up and to let that heavenly perspective on our life in this world and all of our fears and in all of our tremblings that we may hear the voice of Jesus say, defeated, I am triumphant, and because of that, you will be more than conquerors. In Paul's words, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The proclamation, the heavenly perspective, Jesus has the victory. And finally, participation. How will you and me be part of this? How can we find shelter under this great victory? In verse number 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. In other words, the same power and the same influence and the same evil is working in their day in Asia Minor as was working in the days of Noah. And they, that same evil powers were working persecuting Noah and that same evil powers resulted in most of humankind being destroyed in the flood and did not enter the ark with Noah. The same evil powers are working now as was then. And he comes to, to look at the way in which they are to participate. And there are two things that we want to think about 
when it comes to your participation and mine. And the first is having a union with Christ. Paul in Ephesians 5 speaks of marriage and of the mystery of two becoming one flesh. And he immediately goes on to say, I'm not speaking about you, I'm speaking about the relationship between Christ and the church. And Peter here is saying, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. The gospel proclaimed after the resurrection by Peter himself in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. It's at the very essence of the gospel that a relationship with God begins in this union with Christ that comes at the time of our repentance or the repentance that comes at the time of our union. It's that marriage relationship with Christ. And just as in marriage, all of of the, the, the gifts and the abilities of both parties in the marriage come together to to form that one flesh, says the Bible. So in this union, all the good that Jesus has becomes mine. But all the badness that is mine doesn't become his. He has removed that. And in that union, it's his life. It's his love. It's all that he is then becomes mine. And we could read Romans chapter 6 and see the way in which we are baptized into his death and buried with him in baptism and raised with him to newness of life. We can read in Galatians 3, if we are baptized into Christ, we are put on Christ. There is no other way. There is no substitute for this, the essential of having a union relationship with Jesus Christ to be part of this triumph and victory that he speaks of and that he has proclaimed to the powers of darkness that want to keep us entrapped all the days of our lives to to lead us into a lost eternity. Our union with Christ. And you may ask, how do I know today if, if I have that union with Christ? Well, if you have that union, you won't need to ask the question. Because he will be the most important person. The life that there is in him will fill your heart. That will not be the end of your struggles or difficulties. But the life that you will then live will be a life of faith on Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Union shows itself in that life lived by faith. And that leads to the second thing that is equally necessary that we're going to share in the victory of Christ. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. There is that 
sense of performing vows and making commitments. The very word that's used here is a word that speaks to us of questions put to converts at baptism. Questions put to those who are entering into a contract. There is a commitment. There's an acceptance of the terms of the covenant and of the treaty. The the questions are, are being asked of those who are engaging in this relationship. And the questions are being asked in order to seek the commitment and the heartfelt devotion of those who are entering into that contract. And here there is that sense of an appeal to God for a good conscience. That sense of of judge that sits inside all of us. That that tells us when we've done right or wrong. If it's working the way that it should. It's God's presence and God's witness in our consciences. And Peter wants them to make a commitment of devotion to the Lord Jesus. And to do that with a good conscience. Not saying it with the mouth, but withholding the the whole heartfelt commitment in their minds. The good conscience is one which is at peace with God. And so it's making this commitment and confirming, signing up to the covenant contract, confirming that with their mouths and doing it with a sense of the peace of God in our hearts. And then we shall participate in the triumph that God has promised his people, the triumph that is secured through Jesus Christ. And that's how the chapter closes. Having a but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. It's participating in that level of protection, yes, but that sense of triumph and of victory. And to know as we journey on, on our own journey, to have that assurance of, of divine protection and divine presence and that, assur- that assurance that no matter how it seems that we will triumph at last and that we will share in his glory. And the challenge for us today is to respond to the gospel. The challenge for us today is to, to lay hold of the key aspects of the life and ministry and the message of Jesus and to have our confidence in him, and to believe the whole of the truth. In the closing, there's a story told about General Wellington. After the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, where he defeated Napoleon and ended the Napoleonic Wars, and General Wellington wanted to send a message out to all of the people and the message was going to go out in in code messages. And the message was simple. Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. And as the signal was going out, a fog came down. And in some places, 
the only part of the message that came through was Wellington defeated. And of course it was the wrong message. It's only part of the message. And it was when the fog cleared and they saw the whole message, Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. And sometimes for ourselves, the fog comes down and we feel defeated because we don't recognize the whole message, the whole story. We don't recognize the fact that Jesus defeated all of the powers and that because of that, the victory is ours. Beware of the fog. It can come in the shape of fear itself, but let's lay hold of the whole of the truth and let's be strong and let's be faithful and let's enjoy the triumph that will certainly be ours in small measures as we journey along life's way together. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do rejoice in you and in the gospel. We rejoice in your strength in the face of our weakness. We rejoice in your great triumph and victory in the face of a very often sense of being defeated. Help us, O Lord, to embrace the whole gospel and to have the whole Christ and to have the whole of salvation and to have the whole of the victory and the power that is ours as the children of God and help us to live for you day by day and to die with you and for you and to die at last to go to be with you when our journey will be complete as the journey of your Son was completed in that glorious day of his exaltation. Bless your word, we pray. Have mercy, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. To the psalmist, Psalm number 18, and sing Psalms. It's on page 22. Psalm number 18, and sing Psalms on page 22, and at verse 46 to the end of the psalm. The Lord lives, praise be to my rock. My Saviour God exalted be. He has avenged me and subdued rebellious peoples under me. To the end of the psalm, to God's praise. The Lord lives, praise be to my rock. My Saviour God Your 
We'll stand for the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.